Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Any more liberation? Any more liberation? Any more liberation? Whoa. Hello listeners, welcome to Freedom of Species. We're the radio show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. You just heard Sally Goldner with her show Out of the Pen, and you can catch her every Sunday at noon. And you should, because she brings you excellent queer radio, and she is a stellar person. I am your host, Davita Coronel, and I'm here with Trev. Hi everyone. Yeah, today we are replaying a talk that Harley MacDonald Eckersall gave at the Animal Activist Forum and it was on the Palestinian Animal League, which is an organisation that operates in Palestine and they are focused predominantly on animal advocacy and animal rights. However, they incorporate a lot of other things into their activism by necessity, as you'll find out when you listen to Harley's talk. So we're going to play it pretty much in full. And the first part is coming up now. Thank you very much. Um, I'm not actually from the Palestinian Animal League. Um, I'll say that up front. I visited Palestine earlier in the year with the Palestinian Animal League on a political vegan tour of Palestine. Today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what I learned through that experience. First off, I want to start by acknowledge, to acknowledge that we stand today on land stolen from the Rundry people of the Kulin Nation. They were custodians of this land for tens of thousands of years before white settlers came and forcibly colonised what we now know as Australia. To this day, the land and culture of Indigenous Australians is in an active state of colonisation. Sovereignty over this land has never been ceded, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, while recognising their respects means paying attention to the voices of Indigenous activists who spake out against colonisation. Next up, I want to recognise who is not in this room. We are here as animal activists, and yet, as humans, we can only ever speak on behalf of or in solidarity with the group we fight for. In the future, I imagine that these kind of conferences would happen on sanctuaries, where we can share the space with the very animals we are advocating for. But for now, I want to take a moment to acknowledge and recognise these animals. I want to take a moment for all of us to feel their pain and their fury, recognising the ways in which they resist their exploitation every day. I also want to take a moment to remember the animals who have been freed or who have freed themselves and to acknowledge all the animals who live amongst us with minimal human interference. These animals are pioneers and they show us what could be possible. Today is a chance to listen to the voices of all animals and pay attention to when human greed, ambition or ego is getting in the way of letting them be heard. Finally, I want to acknowledge one more group 
before I get stuck into what this presentation is all about. So as you probably gathered by the title of this presentation today, I will be speaking about the animal rights movement in occupied Palestine and what we can learn from the incredible work being done by the Palestinian Animal League. However, as you probably gathered by looking at me, I am not Palestinian. So I visited Palestine in March this year on a political vegan tour of Palestine, which was run by the Palestinian Animal League. And I believe it is my, it's kind of my duty to share what I learned there with my community. And it is also absolutely my privilege. Before I begin this presentation, I want to take the time to acknowledge the active oppression of Palestinian people, as well as the continuous colonization of their land, food, and culture. Due to the color of my skin and the country I was born in, I have the luxury to speak out about the atrocities committed against Palestinian people, a luxury denied to most of those living under occupation. Palestinians are at the forefront of their own resistance, and I do not pretend to be an expert on their situation. But I do have a voice to dine to many, and today I'll be using it to elevate the lessons I learned from Palestinian activists. At the conclusion of this talk, I will provide some links to resources written by Palestinian activists, artists, and academics, and I'll highly recommend that everyone took the time to check these out. So now I invite everyone to close your eyes. Kind of take a couple of deep breaths, and try and center yourself in the space that we. Now, I want you to imagine a country whose name appears on few maps, despite it existing for thousands of years. I want you to imagine a land of hard rock, rugged mountains and deep valleys. Breathe in and imagine your lungs being filled with the smell of zatar, wild thyme which grows on the mountains, and of warm bread baked fresh over a hot stone. Imagine the sound of a bustling marketplace, laughter, Voices shouting, enticing you to pick their products. The sizzling sound of falafel being cooked fresh. Imagine the rich reds and yellows and browns of a spice store, where the spices are built into towers of colour and dried dates hang from the ceiling. Now I want you to put all of this together. Imagine this land full of warmth, generosity, love and food and add to it a constant, ever-present backdrop of gunshots. This is Palestine. Imagine a land where children play in the wreckage of homes destroyed by bombs. Imagine a school built by the UN for Palestinian children, riddled with bullets, because it stands opposite a guard post, and Israeli soldiers, children themselves, get bored. Imagine a family having lost a brother or cousin or daughter to Israeli bombs, forced to sleep for one month in the ruins of their home before they are allowed to rebuild. Imagine hunger and thirst and a constant threat that water will run out, despite the fact that the taps of your oppressors run clear and limitless. Imagine being born, born into a refugee camp and knowing you may never see the town that you still call your home. Imagine holding the key that your grandparents used to last lock the door of their homes when they were driven from them 70 years ago and vowing that one day you will return to your home, a right that all have under international human rights law. Imagine working for months to get a visa to see your dying mother who lives two towns over 
only to be turned away at the border by an 18-year-old soldier with a rifle. He gives no reason. Imagine a country where tourists sit on an air-conditioned bus at a checkpoint while locals line up to have their identity cards examined. Imagine being strict searched at that same checkpoint by a soldier wearing vegan leather boots who, if interviewed, would claim she was against exploitation of all species. Imagine a country where those who lead are taught since childhood that they are superior, that Palestinians are terrorists, that we need to protect our people. Imagine these children then being handed guns. Imagine a people filled with resistance who face guns with stones and turn tear bomb canisters into jewelry they sell to tourists. Imagine a people filled with pride who resist their oppressors every day and are killed for this resistance. Imagine a country filled with love and warmth and a people who fight for their right to exist. This is Palestine. I'd like everyone to open their eyes now. So Palestine is a land of contradictions, where heavily armed military stand shoulder to shoulder with blushing brides, where different faiths occupy the same buildings, yet are divided by walls and mistrust, and where food is both a celebration and an act of resistance. And amidst all of this, all of this political tension and pressure sits the Palestinian Animal League. So PAL was founded in 2011, and they're the only animal rights organization that operates within occupied Palestinian territories. So PAL is based in Ramallah, which is the economic capital of Palestine. So Jerusalem is the spiritual capital of Palestine, Ramallah is the economic capital. So that's where trade happens, that's where a lot of students live. It's kind of, I guess it's, the, it's considered the most modern city in Palestine. Pala base there, they have their offices there, and they have their vet clinic there. So the PAL are responsible for a number of community and outreach programs, all centered around animal rights and welfare. They include their vet clinic, so this delivers medical care to stray animals in Ramallah, so anyone can bring an animal along to PAL's vet clinic and they'll treat them. And they also work with working and domestic animals, they run community and youth programs, including Youth for Change, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about later, but basically it aims to break the cycle of violence that is generated from intergenerational trauma and end the normalisation of violence, um, which kind of occurs in villages due to the constant presence of soldiers. So Powell runs programs to help young people recognise their feelings of anger and express them in healthy ways rather than through violence. So what they found is that often young people will be exposed to violence through soldiers in the villages. They would then go to the villages and they'd take out this violence on stray dogs, particularly, um, because there's this link, there's a big link between Palestinians and fear of dogs, which I'm going to talk about again in a minute. Um, and then they, those same young people would grow up and be violent to their partners and that would cause this kind of cycle of violence which Pal recognised and decided they wanted to intervene on. So additionally, Pal runs regular events promoting a vegan lifestyle, many of which are run by youth, as well as recognising and responding to local animal welfare issues. So what Pal does really interestingly is they work with a lot of local people, they work within their community and what I'm going to be talking about today is some of the ways that they really innovated community and grassroots activism, which I really think we could benefit from in Australia, because they 
are in the midst of occupation. They are working with groups who are often not very open to considering issues outside their own oppression. So the way they deal with that is really inspiring and incredible. So I'm going to be touching on some key things, particularly how they work within communities, how they work with other communities such as the Baduan tribes, and how they kind of navigate belonging to multiple movements at once. So how they consider animal land and human oppression as being interlinked and everything that they do recognises and acknowledges that. So all of these programs are run in collaboration with their local community and they're championed by locals, so that empowers them to make a difference in their community. So I could talk for a long time about the work of power, but there's one thing that they do do that I want to draw particular attention to as it really encapsulates their style of activism. So in Palestine, many people have a deep fear of dogs, as Israeli soldiers have been known to use dogs against Palestinians to attack protesters or bystanders. So in Palestine, there's a lot of street dogs, there's a lot of street cats, and Pal has been very open about acting. They, they act as a vet clinic, they don't act as a shelter, because in their belief, they consider it better for dogs and cats to be able to roam free and live their lives rather than to sit in the cage in their shelter. So, and that's their belief, and it works for them, especially for cats. Cats are really loved in the community. Um, cats don't belong to anyone. They roam freely. They're fed by everyone, whoever they kind of happen to pick to sleep with that night. So, but dogs, on the other hand, aren't treated as well because of that deep-seated fear. So Palpine kind of saw this, and they saw that they wanted to maintain the street dog's autonomy. They wanted them to be able to live their lives. They wanted them to be able to be respected and treated with dignity. And they also wanted the Palestinian people to kind of break down that fear and understand that they have more in common with these dogs than they do with the Israeli soldiers who are using them against them. Yeah, so street dogs often um, become victims of violence in the villages as people express that kind of internalised rage out against someone who's a lot smaller than them because they can't attack a soldier. So power recognised this and they realised that in order to make their community safe of the street dogs, they needed to break down this fear response. They realised that the best way to do this was to start with children. So when I visited Pal in March, there was a puppy there. His name was Axe. He was so gorgeous, friendly, loving, and for everyone at Cal, he not only represented someone who they could help, he represented an opportunity. So while we were there, um, we were sitting around at Cal's offices, and three local boys came over. They'd been invited by the Palestinian Animal League to come and just simply play with Axe. So we kind of thought, we're sitting there and we're like, oh, that's cool. That's, you know, some kids playing with a dog. And then we realised how terrified these young boys were. They were about 11 years old and they were shrinking away from this tiny puppy. They were absolutely terrified. So they were so scared, they ran away from the puppy. They uh, attempted to strike him sometimes when he kind of ran at them to try and play. And we were there for about half an hour. And during this time, something changed. So by the end of the time that we were there, both boys and puppies were playing together happily. They were wrestling in the grass. When it got too rough, the people, the volunteers from the Palestinian Animal League would step in and kind of say, like, how about we, we treat the dog like this instead? So this vision of a world where humans live in harmony with other species is so representative of power. 
and what they believe in. And for me, this story demonstrates the deep respect power has for both humans and for other species and how they believe that these need to work in tandem. So respect needs to happen simultaneously. So now we get to the guts of this presentation. It's kind of, you know, it's all well and good for me to talk about how incredible Pal is, how incredible Palestine is, but as you might be thinking, it's pretty different over there to how it is here. But it's not really. We're a country that also is in a state of active colonization. Most of us probably benefit from that. And the lessons we can learn from what Palestine is doing are lessons that we can not only apply to our relationship with Indigenous Australians, but which we can apply to connecting to communities that differ from ours, from creating coalitions with other activist groups, and from building this and to building this movement into one that is strong, one that bridges boundaries, one that encourages people to work together to identify the way all of our issues kind of have these root causes and attack the root causes rather than the symptoms. So what can we learn from the work of PAP? And what elements of their activism could we potentially benefit from bringing to our movement in Australia? So for our remaining time together, I'm going to offer some of my ideas and my perspectives on some things that I learned, some things that I would love to see brought back to Australia. So first off, know your audience. So Powell, as I said, they are in Ramallah. They're in the center of the economic capital. So as you can imagine, people in living there, they're a bit more privileged. Like there's still a refugee camp in Ramallah. There might actually be two. I know definitely of one. I visited one. But people are a little bit more, have, they have more of a capacity to be politically engaged. So they're kind of sitting at the center of this place where debate is happening a lot. There's people around who, you know, completely anti-occupation. There's people who might be more um, centrist in their views. They might be more like, we need to kind of be good Palestinians. We need to show them that we're good enough to have basic human rights. So there's debate happening all the time about what it means to live under occupation, what political action should be taken, just like you see in Australia, except the difference is when people take political action in Ramallah, they are shot. So when we were there, actually, um, we were there on a Friday and we were walking down the street and one of the streets was blockaded. And we were asked why it was blockaded by Israeli soldiers. And they said, it's a Friday. So Friday's a day of rest for Palestinians. It's the, it's the weekend. Um, the road that they blockaded was an entry to a Palestinian refugee camp. It was the only road in. There was also a wedding right next to the blockade. So we were standing there watching this happen and the tension was palpable. So as we were standing there, Israeli soldiers had rifles slung over their so shoulders. They were walking back and forth and Palestinian people began to gather. So there were children from the refugee camps, there were their parents, they were holding stones, they were holding slingshots, they were standing around. We were kind of standing there a bit awkwardly, like, should we be here? Um, what's going to happen? Um, is this safe? Are we making them unsafe? And they were like, no, 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 just take pictures. A lot of Palestinians taking selfies with us with the Israeli guards in the background. We're like, this is great. Cool. What's going on? 
And then they were like, don't worry, we'll get you out before the wedding finishes. And we're like, okay, what does that have to do with anything? And they said, oh, oh, the children will never throw stones while the wedding's happening. They respect the wedding too much. After the wedding finishes, that's when things are going to happen. And we actually learned later that a boy was shot that day later on after the wedding finished. Finished. He was shot in his knees. Um, and it's interesting that he was shot in the knees because a high-up Israeli official was actually on the record saying that he had plans to create a generation of crippled Palestinians with the intent that if they can't walk, they can't resist. So this was happening in Ramallah minutes from Powell's offices. So they exist in a state of tension all the time. So it is essential that they know who they're working with. They know their cultural triggers. They're all Palestinian, of course, but as we know, as animal activists, sometimes you can get caught up in your own community. You can forget what's happening outside of it, what is happening for other people who aren't in your community. It's so easy to do because we, you know, we get caught in our echo chambers. We forget to speak to people who aren't activists. We can forget to speak to people who are activists in different areas. And I think there's some great presentations um, about building alliances between different movements, which I think are really essential for this kind of thing. So they need to know their culture triggers. And one of those, you know, like I just said, it's dogs. They know that there's this deep-seated Palestinian, this fear of between Palestinians and dogs. So knowing that, they can start to address that. They know that some people do not have the capacity to make the kind of change that they want to see. So Pal, like most of us in this room, I would imagine, are intensely anti-speciesist. They believe that any exploitation, any use of animals is wrong. However, they know that there are people in their community who can't meet them at that point. So for example, the Bedouin tribes, they're nomadic tribes, they live in the desert, there they suffer, they struggle under occupation just as much as anyone else, probably more so because they don't have like this kind of rights that come with living in a kind of dwelling. So they use working animals, they use donkeys, they use camels. Powell, of course, would prefer that they did not do this. However, they recognise that these people are facing extreme oppression and that they are not at a place to currently make the changes that they ideally want to see. So instead, what they did is they created the first ever, like the first ever in Palestine, document for caring for working animals. They provided it to the Bedouin. So for the first time, these people um, had laid out for them warning signs of when a donkey was becoming dehydrated. Things like load limits, like what is uh, an average donkey's, like what can they carry without severely injuring their back. Things like what to do in, a, in cases of emergency. And a lot of these things are things that the Bedouin have figured out for themselves, but they didn't have access to the kind of modern vet kind of knowledge, like the power has vets with them, they have their vet clinic, they didn't have access to things like medication, and also a lot of things are being denied to them. So usually the Bedouins would move a long way and they would take the animals with them, but um, what Israeli soldiers do is they make them leave their working animals at checkpoints, so they have to leave them for hours in the sun. So Powell kind of gave them guidelines on how to mitigate this, what to do, how to provide water, what to do in emergencies, and so for the first time this was something that was being addressed and it wasn't the perfect solution, of course, but it was meeting their audience where they were at. They also, when you know your audience, you recognize connections. 
So something that's really big in Palestine is food sovereignty. So I talked earlier about zatar. So Palestinians are forbidden from harvesting zatar. So zatar grows wild on the mountainside, and Palestinians for generations have harvested it. They use it in a lot of their cooking. It's and I have a friend who's Brazilian, and she says like she used to buy Palestinian zatar in Palestine, take it back to Brazil, and it would never taste the same. It's it's special. Basically, zatar is a food staple. So kids for breakfast would have bread with zatar. Um, you'd have it for every meal. It's just on the table. It's just iconic. It's something that is at the core of Palestinian culture. So to kind of assist in their colonization problem progress, as we always see, food became part of the Israeli government's plan, their colonization plan. So they banned Palestinians from harvesting wild zatar. A lot of them still do, a lot of them are arrested. But when we look at that, how can we recognize that that's a connection? A lot of Palestinians' food, a lot of their culture is based in plant-based food. Really, if you go to Palestine, they will only try and serve you an animal because they feel that they need to. A lot of them are living in states of poverty. Eating animals is something that the rich do. Eating animals is something that is reserved for higher-ups. So a lot of their kind of the food and the culture that is really core to them is based around plant-based food. So when power can recognize that, they can join movements for food sovereignty. They can join resistance against food-based colonization, and they can help spread this message that animal rights is not only about one type of person, it's not only about people who have the capacity to care about these animals, it's about our lives as well, it's about how we respect the earth. So when you know, when they know their audience, they can find those connections, they can find those touch points, those things that everyone cares about that happen to be in line with their values as well. And I think that's something that's really important when we're talking about activism in Australia. When we think about those cultural things, those iconic touch points that everyone cares about. Because like, we can run a campaign and it can be about something that we all would agree is morally wrong. But if the rest of society doesn't understand how it's relevant to them, it's not going to get very far. But when we are connected, when we know our audience, we can build campaigns that influence everyone, that touch everyone, that have a symbolic meaning for the biggest percentage of people. Yeah, that's great. We're going to pause there quickly. This is Harley McDonald Eckersall's talk from the Animal Activist Forum in 2019 on the Palestinian Animal League. We're going to take a quick break now with a music track. Yes, you'll hear a song, a poem, actually, written by the Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish. It is put to music by Marcel Khalife, and the song is called Ahmed Emerges from the Ancient Wounds. إلى تفاصيل البلاد وكانت سنة انفصال البحر عن مدن الرمادي وكنت وحدي ثم وحدي 
أحمدو كان اقتراب البحر بين رصاصتين مخيما وينجب زعترا ومقاتلي وساعدا يشتد في النسيان ذاكرة تجيء من القطارات التي تمضي وأرصفة بلا مستقبلين ويا سمين وأرصفة بلا مستقبلين ويا سمين كان اكتشاف الذات في العربات في المشهد البحري في ليل الزنازين الشقيقة في العلاقات السريعة والسؤال عن الحقيقة في كل شيء كان أحمد يلتقي بنقيده عشرين عاما كان يسأل عشرين عاما كان يرحل عشرين عاما كان يسأل عشرين عاما كان يرحل عشرين عاما لم تلده أمه إلا دقائق في إناء الموز وانسحبت يريد هوية فيصاب بالبركان سافرت الغيوم وشردتني ورمت معاطفها الجبال وخبأتني يريد هوية فيصاب بالبركان سافرت الغيوم وشردتني ورمت معاطفها الجبال وخبأتني 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 خبأتني خبأتني Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out. Go to callitout.com.au A 3CR supporter. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 
12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Things need topping up every now and then. Monty, auntie. Thanks, bub. Including your COVID protection. If you're an adult and it's been six months since you caught COVID or had a COVID jab, you can now top up with a free COVID-19 booster. It helps keep you and your mob protected from serious illness from COVID-19. So talk to your doctor or health worker about a free COVID-19 booster or visit health.gov.au forward slash top up to find out more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Freedom of Species. You just heard the song, the poem Ahmed Emerges from the Ancient Wounds by Mahmoud Darish. We'll continue listening to part two of Harley's talk on the Palestinian Animal League. So next up, I've touched on this already, but community is key. So cows centers themselves in their community. They don't distance themselves. They don't operate as their own little kind of thing in their offices and it's kind of invite only. They're in the community all the time. So they identify their needs and they tailor their programs to address the needs of the community while also raising awareness for their cause. So a great example of this is Youth for Change. So I mentioned a bit earlier um, this idea of breaking the cycle of violence. So what Powell did with this, they identified that the community was experiencing difficulty with domestic violence and community violence. And they kind of followed that back. They kind of checked, going down the rabbit hole and they were like, where does this come from? Domestic violence, community violence, where does this start? So they realised that children were being exposed to violence from a really young age. There were gunshots every night. Tear gas canisters were being thrown into the camp. They would see soldiers beating one of their classmates. So they were being exposed to this kind of violence and that leads them up. So then they were going into their community and they were filled with this rage, this sense of injustice. They were seeing their their peers being killed, there were walls with names of martyrs on them, and they were raised to know that they were oppressed. They were raised to understand that they weren't allowed to go home, ever. So they were filled with this rage and this violence. What do they do? They can throw stones at soldiers, they get shot. So a lot of the time they took out that violence on the dogs, on the cats, on the individuals in society who couldn't really fight back. And this also led to a desensitization of violence. So there used to be a lot of public slaughter in Ramallah and other villages. So cows, sheep, they would be killed in the public, in the village. And everyone was just desensitized to this. Blood on the streets was so normalized. People didn't even think about it. People didn't even worry about it. When you kind of think of that, they saw that. And then they realized how that desensitization would lead to domestic violence, would lead to community violence. So they decided to go back to the roots. They decided to work with youth. So they created this program, and by doing this, how offered the community something that they needed. The community identified that they had a problem with violence. They needed a solution, and how offered that, while also simultaneously demonstrating how anti-speciesism speciesism formed a part of the solution. So when we're working within communities, when we're working within communities, particularly communities who are facing oppression, who are facing exploitation, when we identify a problem that they are facing and then we 
figure out and explain how anti-speciesism is part of the solution and create a program that includes that as one element of the solution, then we can really build these really amazing community alliances where everyone is behind the goal and the kind of the tactics become part of that goal. So power works with their community rather than against them. They are always striving to offer their community something positive while spreading their message. And I think that's something that is really important. Like some activism is going to be disruptive, is going to piss people off, and that is needed. But I think when we're talking about community, we're talking about working within communities, we need to be thinking, what is the incentive? How can we incentivize this? How can we make what we're doing give something back to the community? And I think a really great example in Australia at the moment is the duck shooting campaign. So people who don't care about ducks care about that campaign because they're worried about public safety. They're worried about what it does when men with guns come into their community and start shooting. So that's just one example of a campaign that's already happening in Australia that knows their community, that is working within a community to identify a need and show them how anti-speciesism can be part of the solution. And I definitely think we need more campaigns like that. So next up, I cannot show this enough, work with youth. So some people might know that I was one of the co-founders of Young Voices for Animals, which was a youth empowerment organisation. Um, and we did a bunch of youth programs. And the reason we decided to work with youth is we identified that there was a lack of youth spaces. But when we started working with youth, we realized the positives, the benefits of working with young people. So Powell partners with the main university in Palestine, so that's Al-Quds University, uh, basically it means uh, Jerusalem University, sorry. Um, and they take on volunteers through their volunteer program. So they have a connection within the university and they have this volunteer program. People can choose to go to Palestine, uh, sorry, go to Ramallah and work with Pal. Usually these people aren't vegan, they're not vegetarian. They probably, you know, have some care for animals, probably like them. But they go there and they get to be exposed to Pal's work. And they get to be exposed to how they unify human rights, land rights and animal rights. And what that does, then they can go back to their university and they can spread that message further than Pal ever could. So PAL also runs Youth for Change. This empowers young people to create positive change in their communities and avoid violence. And many of PAL's public events are run by young people. They have a youth feeding club in Ramallah and they hold dinners, they hold movie screenings. I think when we were there, they just run a screening, which was pretty popular, and they had all vegan food. So working with youth means working with the people who will likely be most open-minded when it comes to altering their way of life. Additionally, Youth generally have more free time and they're keen to do things that expand their circle of friends and fill their time meaningfully. So Powell recognises that youth are the future and that when it comes to creating political change, when it comes to changing the cultural conversation to include animals in the anti-oppression movement, youth are the gateway. Youth are the people who have that capacity, who probably haven't been yet they're exposed to violence every day, of course, but they probably haven't been yet indoctrinated into that idea that I am living in a state of survival. I cannot think about anyone except for me and my community. Youth are usually more open. Again, they have more time. And they're often pursuing, what am I going to do with my life? How am I going to make change? How am I going to change the world? 
So when we're working with young people, we're expanding this opportunity to change the dialogue because the conversations that young people have today are the society we live in in 20 years. Like society can change so much in one generation and we've seen it happen time and time again. The cultural conversation shifts. So when you're working with youth, you're changing that cultural conversation. You're enabling people to expand past their current circle of compassion. Know your enemies. I think this one is really important for a lot of movements and power does it really well. And I don't usually like using the word enemy. The reason I use it is not to kind of create this antagonistic thing where we need to be like, oh, those are our enemies, we hate them. But it's to expand on this idea, again, of communities and how when we're identifying oppression, we need to think about who are the oppressors, who are our fellow oppressed. But sometimes our fellow oppressed aren't people we like. They aren't people we get along with. So when I think talk about enemies, I'm not talking about people we kind of we kind of piss us off. I'm talking about the people who create the systemic systems of injustice that we need to be fighting against. So power knows who their oppressors are, and they know that the people in their community are their fellow oppressed. So it would be easy for power to look at the Bedouin tribes and say they are our enemies. They are using animals. They are exploiting animals. They are our enemies. We need to rally against them. But they don't. They look at them and they see that they are their fellow oppressed and they strive to work with them to make achievable change, to build that cultural conversation so the next generation can make even more change. So Pal never forgets who their oppressors are. They strive to rally against them, not their fellow oppressed. And this often means accepting that their community will not move forward quite as quickly on animal rights issues as they would like, given how full their lives are with their own oppression. So Pal never forgets their purpose, and that's another really important point. They never forget that they are an anti-species organisation. But they accept their environment and they support their communities to make changes that are achievable given their circumstances. So we have many people in our own community and our, and our country who struggle to open their hearts to other animals because of they are already, their hearts are already full with the suffering of their own people. So rather than seeing them as enemies, we should side with them as fellow oppressed individuals and understand that change might happen slower for them. At the same time, we should welcome them into our spaces and our movement and support their liberation movement to the extent of our capacity. We aren't superhumans. I understand it can be overwhelming to try and expand our circle of compassion to everyone who is oppressed and that can just lead to feeling awful and feeling like you can't make any change. But when I say supporting other liberation movements to the extent of our capacity, that means knowing who the real oppressors are, knowing what systemic injustices are occurring, knowing who is struggling against that, and, maybe, and understanding that that might limit people's ability to absolutely side with them. But that doesn't mean that you can't work with them, that you can't build coalitions, that you can't build relationships, and that you can't work towards common goals. We should all be striving to work towards common goals and make the world a safer, better place for everyone. Next up, staying connected. 
So PAL is connected to the anti-apartheid movement in their country. They see animal, human and land rights as interlinked and inseparable. So this gives them a wider ally pool and it also broadens their perspective which allows for more strategic action. So as an example of this, I told you that I went on a political vegan tour of Palestine with the Palestinian Animal League. It was an eight-day tour. We spent one day with the Palestinian Animal League. Every other day, we went on tours with locals of different countries. They told us about the, like, the politics of Palestine. Um, we every yeah every day we went on a tour of a different place. A local gave us the tour. They told us about their reality. They told us about what day daily life is for them. These people supported the Palestinian Animal League. Most of them weren't vegan, they weren't vegetarian, they weren't animal rights activists though. They were usually human rights, land rights activists, and PAL had built alliances with them. So six out of the eight days, we visited different towns, different cities. We went on a food tour of Jerusalem. We went to Hebron, which is one of the most heavily places which is most heavily under oppression. Every day we had local guides show us around, tell us about their daily reality. Yeah, one day out of those eight days, we went and saw the Palestinian Animal League. We spent about two hours there, actually, in the, in the end. Um, the rest of the time we hung out with protesters who were kind of gathering against the Israeli soldiers who were blocking the road. And at the end of it, we were talking to our guide and we were like, we didn't actually learn anything about how they didn't, talk, they didn't tell us about what they do. So she kind of sat down and she told us about what they do. And we were kind of a bit confused. We were like, why have they brought us here on this tour? Why have they told us they're going to tell us about all their work and then taken us on a drive around Palestine, pointing out all the refugee camps, taking us on a drive around Ramallah and introduced us to a bunch of people who aren't involved with power at all. And then as we talked to our guide, I began to understand how essential connection is to them. They go to the protests. They put themselves on the front lines of the human rights protests. They are there as well because they understand that for their people, this issue is happening every day and it's the reality for them as well. The founder of Powell lives in the refugee camp. He was born, um, I think he was born there, which is in Ramallah. So he lives in this. People in Palestine can't divorce themselves from their movement. They can't choose not to care. There's a privileged few who can choose to be not political, but pretty much everyone we met in Palestine was intensely political because they didn't have a choice. Powell recognizes that. And we need to as well, because there's people in our society for who that is also the reality. People who are living on our streets, homeless, they can't divorce themselves from their reality. And that's what I do in my day job, actually. I talk to year nines usually about the social issues that are happening on the streets of Melbourne. People who are under active colonisation, Indigenous Australians, can't divorce themselves from their political reality. People who are experiencing mental health, physical health issues, people with disabilities, people who are experiencing oppression of any kind because of the colour of their skin, because of their sexuality or gender, they do not have the luxury of divorcing themselves of their political reality. So when we stay connected, when we understand that those movements have to exist just as ours has to exist, 
Then we increase our ally pool, we increase our movement for liberation because it, because it becomes a movement of movements. It becomes a movement against oppression, not the animal rights movement and the other movements. So how models an example of staying connected, of understanding that animal rights doesn't exist in a vacuum, that it exists because of systems of oppression that are built in to our society and unfortunately built into most societies. So when we stay connected, we can challenge that and we are stronger together. So my final point is elevating the marginalised. And I put this last, but I cannot stress how important it is. So the Palestinian Animal League, they do have Israeli supporters. There are a lot of, there are a lot of Israeli people who are against um, colonization, who are against the apartheid of Palestinian people, and they are activists, they are supporters. I'm not I'm definitely not coming up here and saying all Israeli people are evil. I'm saying that Palestine and the Palestinian Animal League elevate the people who are experiencing active oppression. So the voices of the marginalized need to be heard. So while PAL has Israeli supporters, and if they were to use these supporters to openly speak in favor of them, they would probably get more public support. In fact, when we were there, we were told by multiple Palestinian activists that they would often attend a panel or a conference about Palestinian issues and would be composed almost entirely of Israeli activists and academics. There would usually be one token Palestinian. And if you think about it, you know, it's quite similar when you think about women's rights, you know, you have a panel on abortion and it be four men and one woman being like, hey, you know, this kind of affects me. So when we don't elevate the marginalised, we kind of reinforce the dominant narrative. We reinforce what is already accepted. So how could put their Israeli activists on a pedestal? And as we all know, Israel is often considered, like Tel Aviv is often considered the vegan capital of the world. Um, I could do a whole nother presentation on vegan washing and how that happens in Israel. Unfortunately, I don't have the time. But how could easily use that? They could use their Israeli activists. They could get so much more support. So many bloggers go on paid trips to Tel Aviv to write about the vegan food there. And Pal always offers these people. They say, look, we understand that you're coming over here. Will you please come and do a tour with us as well? So all these bloggers, YouTubers, animal rights activists who are being paid by Israel to go over there and, you know, share their experiences with Tel Aviv. Pal has approached them. This is actually why they created the tours in the first place, that they approached them and said, just come to us, see the other side. We don't ask you not to go on the tour, but we ask you to come to us. We'll give you a free tour of Palestine. Not even one of them responded to those messages of, like, those invitations. So how created their own tours to try and get people to come and see their realities. So when we reinforce the dominant narrative, when we don't elevate the marginalised, their stories get so lost. And they often, they, they don't often don't have the capacity, they don't have that voice because, yeah, power can scream, they can write letters to these bloggers, but they don't listen to them. But what they do do is they make sure that no matter what, they are allowing the voices of the oppressed to speak about their oppression. So Powell chooses to elevate Palestinian voices and when we're talking about our movement, we can choose to centre animals. We can choose to centre the voices of people who are experiencing oppression because they're the ones who have that direct experience. They're the ones who 
understand what it feels like. They're the ones who can help us develop strategies that work with communities, that empower people, that aren't belittling or humiliating, as we unfortunately quite often see when privileged people try and speak using or for people who are experiencing oppression. It's so easy to get it wrong. It's so easy, even with the best of intentions, it's so easy to say the wrong thing. I've said the wrong thing so many times, and it is only because I have people around me who, and I do my best to seek out knowledge and to seek out voices of people who are actively oppressed. It's only because I've done that that I have not completely put my foot in my mouth. It is so easy to get it wrong, but when we elevate the voices of those who are oppressed, I wish that I had someone from the Punishment and Animal League speaking here. That was the intention. That didn't happen this time. But when we elevate those voices, they can speak authentically on their reality. And that's the only way we can learn. That's the only way we can move forward. It's the only way we can build a strong movement. So animals, humans, land. Palestinian Animal League believe that these are all connected, that their oppression and that their liberation is connected. And when we believe that, we build this movement, we build this strong, empowered movement which can lead us into the future and which can help us grow as a community and which can actually build a new society, not just destroy the old one. So when we think of these three things in tandem, then our society can start to become shaped, like it, we can shape it in our heads, we can start to imagine this liberated future. I've got some further reading here, which I'll just finish off with. As I said earlier, I really want to elevate Palestinian voices. So, there's a Palestinian animal league, you can just Google it. Just Google Palestinian animal league. There's also electronic intifada, which, so intifada is resistance. Um, there's been two um, intifadas in Palestine, um, all have faced considerable oppression. Um, and that's a kind of digital newsletter, magazine, um, newspaper, which documents kind of the realities of what's happening in Palestine. It's really good to read, it's really good to keep up to date with what's happening, but often the media can't, don't report what's happening in Palestine. So you go into the electronic father and you'll be like, oh wow, five people were killed yesterday. And you see it nowhere. They'll be, they'll, you go on and you realise there was a bombing in Gaza last week, I didn't hear about that. So the media often aren't there, they often don't report it as well. Um, there's also active skills which is um, a group of photographers uh, and they take photos in kind of conflict zones and Palestine is one of them. They actually have been in Gaza during bombings, which is really rare. No one can go into Gaza unless you're a journalist. It's an open-air prison, pretty much. So it's really rare to be able to see footage from within Gaza. And more from me as well. So I've done a couple of podcasts which touch more on the political side of Palestine, so talk a little bit about them right, but they're more political based. So they are all on progressive podcasts, um, which you can Google Facebook as well. There's a myth-busting report back in Palestine on progressive podcasts, and changing the conversation about Palestine also on progressive podcasts. I'm going to plug myself really briefly. Um, so I'm going to be writing quite a bit more about Palestine as well as sharing um, some more videos, and I share quite a lot while I was over there about kind of the daily reality of being there and what I learned from the Palestinian activists who I talked to. I'm Holly Eccles on Facebook, so H-O-L-L-Y-E-C-K-E-L-L-S. Um, so feel free to add me, look that up. I'm also on, I have a blog 
on Medium as Harley McDonald Exel. And I'll be sharing the footage of this presentation as well as the slides. So yeah, if you're interested, check me out. But thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming along. This conversation needs to happen and I'm really privileged to be able to have this conversation at this conference this year. Thank you so much. There we go. That wraps up Harley's speech at the Animal Activist Forum in 2019 for the Palestinian Animal League. That was a great talk and really hope you enjoyed that. We really wanted to play that, especially with what's been going on now, even more relevant than ever with what's happening in Palestine. So also be aware that every Sunday there's going to be rallies at the State Library from midday on Sundays. So please attend if you can. It's really important to have people attending those rallies at the library. They'll be every week, every Sunday for the foreseeable future. Yes, that's great. Before we make way for rotations, we're going to finish with a song by our matriarch, Barca, a new single that she put out called The Vision. The little black fucker's going to get started to get building. If something doesn't come out of it, they're going to start getting flogged. And they won't come back. Because personally, myself, will take them out the scrub and leave them there. Wouldn't that be called lynching? I don't really give a shit what it's called. It is a fucking problem, and I'm over it. You want division, huh? Okay, listen, my people making up 28% of these prisons, we make up 3% here in this population, while the other 97% under the ground missing. Wanna talk about it? Let's talk about it. We got coppers killing mob and walking around and proud about it. Wonder why we're loud about it. Being silent's too long and I'm sick of being angry. My people sick of being too strong. Sick of mum all locked up. All over petty crimes, white men gets let off in the black fellas. Use a life, you got our kids messed up. Ripping part our family ties. Look at the statistics on the beer, their institution lights. I'm sick of getting painted as a drunk. I'd rock up to your pubs and I don't even have a drink. But it's full of fucking gums. I'm sick of white tears claiming they don't get no love. But when you look at the history, they've always hated us. You've created division. This is white man made. Truckers go in the community and make the black girls slaves. Get them hooked on meth. Then the white man rapes and points a finger at the father so the black man's blame. This is the truth, they get fucked up and ain't even mentioned. You bring that poison to the people and tea intervention. Let's teach them a lesson. They'd be nothing without us, we stole inventions and claimed them. Our deafest people go down us, they just created a stick. But you poisoned our waters, you went in danger. My species, most my ancestors were slaughtered. Then they created borders while they wiped out our knowledge. Stop that language off my mother's tongue and fire upon us. So just being honest, I'm preparing to die. You fat means my culture thrives without me alive. I do anything that has a little peace. But before I was born, they already hated me. So the fuck I gotta be? Ain't your puppet on a string? God save the fucking queen. Fuck your anthem, I don't sing. You must gotta be thick. If you think it's all a game, I got my old people here without a name upon their graves. Best believe it's about to change. They had us all stuck in a box. So now we're breaking down the barriers for the ones we have lost. I'm coming for that stolen wealth from my voice, pay the cost. The tables are turned, so now you call me Mrs. Boss. Mr. Boss Man, think you can't close my eyes? I'll be that loud black bitch that you fucking despise. I'll be that angry black sister with a fire inside. That light suffice, and make sure that my young kids survive. You can call it what you want, but I'ma call it how it is. The rest of the world can see that Australia's racist. My pages full of pages commenting without faces. And when they show their faces, they're usually shit face. Have another one, Shazza. Pour it up, put that bottle to your head and you can go and get fucked Think you're better, doesn't matter, you're the neighbourhood drunk It gets fucked up on babies and shames out your son's motherfucker 
65,000 fucking years, now we ain't done yet I don't want your table, fuck your table and it's weak legs Fuck your constitution, you can keep it for them rednecks And every time you look at us, I hope it makes you fucking sweat You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.